2: We bring you Mothman's Red Eye Blend. Yes, delicious Panama beans. Go to lastpodcastmerch.com to order yours today. <laughs> Me! Me! That's right, it's me! 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 Yes! Bring me a strawberry!
3: Bring me a summary, Jake! And the Lord spake, saying, First shalt thou take out the holy pin, then shalt thou count to three, no more, no less. Yada, yada, yada. The Bible's boring. Actually, you know what? Fuck my intro. Forget this intro. April, just play the uh, clip from The Simpsons when Homer goes to college and the nerds just make that dumb Monty Python joke.
2: Look, I'm supposed to get a physics tutor. Well, you come to the right place, then. If there's one thing we know it is science and math. And the worst of every Monty Python routine. We are the knights who say
3: That's how I feel about this goddamn film. Tis but a flesh wound.
2: I'm not dead. I promise I'm getting better. He
3: must be a king. How do you? How can you tell? He ain't
2: got shit all over him. <laughs> in fact, let's not go to Camelot. This is a silly place. I could- Holden, quote, what
3: is a pram? And why does he have to push it a lot? I don't know. I don't know what a pram is.
2: Your mother was a hamster, and your father smelled of elderberries.
3: We would have been best friends in second grade by yes. the time this oh, game is over.
2: Talk about an- un- absurdly quotable movie. Talk about the ultimate, and I want to phrase this correctly, not ultimate comedy nerd movie, but this is the ultimate nerds comedy film, at least growing up. Maybe it's changed now. Maybe it's um, just two hours of Rick and Morty. I don't know what it is. But, But for me growing up, this was the ultimate movie that if you quoted it around the right person, you both understood that you were deeply nerds. And that um, you've been hurt physically, (laughs) probably by your peers, playing people, and family. Uh, yeah, this was this was a film. It's for an me. ancient handshake
3: that yes. connotes that you neither of you were the cool cousin.
2: Yes, and you could co- so so many different uh, quotes too to to for that. I mean, I, I I love this movie so much. It's so memorable, and also like you know what I think it is too. Uh, as I was thinking about my own personal gush with this film, it was definitely this is bringing me back to when, and I mentioned this before, and this super dates us, but whatever the. The Lonely Summers at Home, watching Comedy Central on on TV, which is a very different television program back then, where you uh, really just, they played all sorts, it was a time capsule of old SNL episodes, Kids in the Hall, the original Whose Line Is It Anyway, and there would always be like afternoon movies, and Monty Python, The Holy Grail, was like on all the time. So for the longest time, it was a film that I saw in different parts. It's that mm. one of those weird movie watching experiences that some people have, especially TV junkies that grew up. Cause I feel like it's a little different now. I mean, with streaming, you, you know, you decide to watch something, you throw it on from the beginning, but back then, back in the day, children, fuck faced kids. Okay. Listen up. Old man Holden's got something to say. You would just kind of throw on the TV and we'd be the middle of the movie. Right. Right and it was maybe a part you saw before maybe it wasn't and and especially this being like a sketch comedy film really at the end of the day that has a through like a through line and a loose connectors you could kind of watch it like that you could pick it up at any point and and enjoy like a scene or two and then it would cut to commercial and then you realize you hadn't jerked off in 2 hours so you had to go take care of that you know what i mean and then come back and 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 see maybe the ending part of it and so for the longest time that was the the movie watching experience for me and then i finally got it on VHS and and then it became one of the four movies I had on VHS. It was like that, <laughs> <laughs> Reservoir Dogs, uh, Dazed and Confused, and like one other I don't even know what else. So so it Showgirls. Probably showgirls. Probably showgirls. And then it ends up being that movie you just putting on constantly because it's like one of the four movies you have in your bedroom that you fall asleep to or whatever. And so, you know, and and it was kind of a mind blower when I actually watched it from beginning to end because of how bizarre structurally it is. I hadn't seen those opening credits before. The ending is completely insane and like such a weird, just like downward turn, like such a weird, like, um anti-climax situation and, and just seeing all the little bits I'd missed and putting them all together and putting them in order, you know, and really just falling in love with this movie more and more and more every time I watched it, finding something new or finding, having a new favorite part. And I, uh, yeah, I hadn't really watched much Flying Circus before that. I hadn't seen Life of Brian for a really long time after that. Like this was just, this was my big taste of Monty Python and it has a massive, especially rewatching it again today, even though it's In or over the past weeks, even though it's ingrained in my brain at this point, just realizing how much of a comedy influence this Mm. film had on me and my own sketch comedy writing. Like, even just outside of Monty Python as a whole, yes, of course, the parrot sketch, all that kind of stuff. If you're a sketch comedy writer person, I mean, it's kind of nuts if you aren't familiar with, like, at least the bigger Monty Python sketches. But more than that, this movie and its absolute absurdity and its total unwillingness to, like take the story where you think it would go or do anything by the book, uh, really had such a massive influence on what I would do with Murder Fist years later, my own sketch comedy group in New York. So it's a. am so glad to have this excuse to revisit this film. I know this is, by the way, the first time we're covering Monty Python on this show. I think we will continue to cover Monty Python on this show, but it's such a giant sprawling entity that, like, I wouldn't want to just do an episode yeah, on Monty I, Python and try to cover all these things.
3: I mean, dear God, to tell the story of Monty Python, you'd have to talk about, like, the Cambridge and Oxford reviews. You'd have to yeah. talk about, like, the satire boom of England in the 1950s. You'd have to, like, break down so many things before we even got to the movie.
2: Yeah, I have a, I have, I have, a brief history of that, by the way, just to get set the stage for us, but... Yeah it's way light compared to what we you know how deep we could go on that. The most
3: prominent feeling I had rewatching this movie was the uh just like a lightning bolt the same emotion I had when I was like 11 or or 10 when I watched it for the first time which was they can do that
1: yes, over yes. and
3: over again th- throughout the movie as a kid, having my little baby bean explode in front of the CRT Ugh. television. What? I don't know about that. Baby bean, bean, bean means brain.
2: Oh. You know. I thought it was some kind of sexual thing. Ne- Holden, gross. <laughs> gross.
3: Now, anyway, when my baby bean was just blowing off Ugh. left and right. Oh,
0: what? God.
3: What is? I'm, I'm... This is a you problem, Holden. <sighs> Just quivering on the floor because my baby bean was Classified
2: just <laughs> ad for a new co-host. After this. this is a nightmare. Just talking baby beans. I'm over here talking about my JO schedule when I was an adolescent. Go on, but
3: like right off the bat with the fake Swedish subtitles. Uh, you know, I didn't know anything about Ingmar Bergman. I didn't know what they were referencing. Yeah, but the fact that like the movie was actively fighting with itself in real time. Yes. within the first five minutes the uh, smoke and the fog of the hills of Scotland giving way to the coconut uh, clip-clopping. Even just like the one off aside characters saying, you know, just looking directly into camera during the Tim the Enchanter sketch and just being like, my, what an eccentric performance. (laughs) And like, you know, Camelot, it's only a model. (laughs) Like just this level of just fourth wall obliteration and literally, um, I don't know how to explain this, just exploding the very concept that you're watching a movie is such a prominent and repeated gag. Uh I'm one of the jokes that I think about all the time is uh John Cleese's or Lancelot uh running up towards the castle while the guards are watching him approach from the distance. Yes. And he's not making any headway to the point right. where they're literally looping the footage until finally, out of nowhere, he just is there. Is there, yeah, And yeah. the timing is so immediate, and so your brain funny. is completely scrambled because your sense of time and space, uh, the rules of what a movie is supposed to be, is just completely thrown off kilter. And the movie does that again and again and
2: again. And in that sense, Jake, too, uh, to me, that felt like such a confident display of comedy stylings. So it was really so surprising to me that Nothing about this uh, uh, film uh, in the making of it and the post production, everything was confident. Like this was a, this was them desperately trying to break over into America. This was uh, them trying to test and see if these never-before directors uh, in the Terrys could actually make a competent film that no one had trust in them, uh, or v- almost no one had trust in them financially, except for a bunch of rock and roll bands, which we we'll about. And even that was less about trust and more about... More about taxes, yeah. It <laughs> was a tax write-off for them. Yeah, no studio support and very little budget to work with, and so just the whole thing was like barely hanging by a thread. So just to, you know, and I just feel like it comes comes off not like that it comes off like so confidently out of the box and outside of anything that anyone would make and i love these stories just time and time again we find that it is actually limitations sometimes that helps to create the great art and i think that the suffering from the low budget the the un- uncertainty of it all Helped to create this comedy, in my opinion, comedy masterpiece. I love this film. I think it is one of the greatest comedy films of all time. If you've never seen it before, do yourself a favor. Start it from the beginning and enjoy. And if you haven't watched it in a while, my God, I mean, you don't need to hear this from me, but it holds up so well. I mean, the comedy, but you know, it, it's I, I, I could, I could sense maybe a, a comment of like, oh, it's, it's a little uneven at parts or pacing, pacing issues or something like that. But again.
3: Even the movie itself will interrupt and just say, yeah. "Get on with it."
2: <laughs> yeah, I, it, it's so self-aware. I love the way that it breaks the fourth wall. I love, I love the way that it is both a sketch comedy movie that's deceptively, uh, it's deceptively a sketch comedy movie. I should say, like it, it has a through line and it has this sense of forward momentum. So it's doing something with sketch comedy in in a filmic setting to me that is incredibly like difficult to do. Mm. So it's not just like Kentucky Fried Movie or this where it's just a bunch of separate just, you know sketches. It it has this flow to it and this connectivity that is just like such a difficult challenge to pull off. And then to know that this was like not them totally like the pythons just like on top of their game making the exact thing that they planned to make from the beginning no this is just totally all over the place in terms of their you know their confidence that that they could that they could actually pull this thing off and it was a fucking miserable experience just- too Which is always fun to hear, too, to know that there was blood, sweat, and tears truly put into making this thing. And so awesome to see that it really did, you know, uh, spoiler alert, it it does break them into America and becomes this massive financial success for them and completely pays off, thank God, because (laughs) what they went through to make this, it would be such a tragedy if if it just completely was a a total bust for them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Jake, any more thoughts before we get into the knit grit? Uh, no, I think it's time. I think
3: it's time to get nitty and, or perhaps, may maybe
2: gritty. All right, whatever, baby bean. Let's get into. Let's do this. It's a perfectly now. You know what? normal lose thing my to number say. after baby bean. <laughs> blasted baby beads over here. Monty Python the Holy Grail is a 1975 British comedy film written and performed by the comedy group Monty Python consisting of the following members. Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Terry Gilliam, Eric Idle, Terry Jones, and Michael Palin. It parodies the legend of King Arthur's quest for the Holy Grail and is the first feature film for the group with an original story. Yeah, they did okay. have one film before this. We'll talk about that we'll with an original story. It. It's very... We'll talk about but it. Like, it was straight up a sketch comedy movie. We'll get in, into it. But first, I have two things. A brief history of Bunny Python, and then a brief history of the Arthurian legend. Oh, my God. We're getting into the matter of Britain. Yes. I learned a couple things myself about the Arthurian legend, actually. So it was kind of nice to do a little a little bit of a dive in there. And honestly, it's a bit necessary, and we're not going to get into the exact examples per se. But all throughout this film, there are tons of h- history nerd. <laughs> Nods or, or literature nerd nods to the Arthurian legend and to, you know, the, the historical fiction that came out of the medieval ages. But we'll, we'll get there. Uh, uh, first of all, brief history of Monty Python. So Terry Jones and Michael Palin, they meet at Oxford University and are a part of a comedy group called the Oxford Review. Meanwhile, Graham Chapman and John Cleese met at Cambridge University and uh later are joined by Eric Idle and perform as a part of the amateur theatrical club, the Cambridge University Footlights. So you have Oxford and Cambridge, by the way, the two most like prestigious yeah. British schools. Um they're they're split up at this time though. What you have
3: to understand more importantly than the who, what, when, where is that? All of them are the children of uh, World War II <laughs> era veterans, and uh, for just all, all a lot of uh, angry, traumatized dads. The lot of us. Yes.
2: I'm sure, absolutely. John Cleese ended up being the person who meets future member Terry Gilliam in New York City while on tour with the Footlights, and they just hit it off, and I guess he just kept him in mind, kept him in his back pocket, uh, as uh, Terry Gilliam was doing this kind of, like, interesting amateur animation stuff at the time. These two groups of people uh, would intermingle on the BBC satire TV show The Frost Report, which broadcast back in the late 60s, and after that, the BBC offers John Cleese and... uh, Chapman Graham Chapman their own show And, uh, you know, they were off kind of admiring the work that Eric Idle, Terry Jones, and Michael Palin had done on a comedy show called Do Not Adjust Your Set. And so they decided to bring them into the project. And then lastly, they pull in Terry Gilliam, uh, who at the time uh, was mainly used for these, like I said, stop motion animation segments that he had made himself known for.
3: But obviously within the first few seasons, they, uh, you know, really got a hold of him and understood that if you need... A uh, stone-faced weirdo to go. Ray, ray, ray. <laughs> See, <laughs> you get
2: Terry Gilliam, and he is like the, the the odd man out in a lot of ways. He's the American who ended up lucky enough to get involved with the Pythons. I mean, like I, I'm weirdly jealous of well, him.
3: I wouldn't say lucky. Uh, you know, the animations, the interstitials, mm-hmm. even the uh, design, and for then later
2: the, his dir- his directing work as well. Yeah, yeah,
3: it was very essential for the whole brand. He brought just as much. To the Python experience as uh, anybody else, it's 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 uh you know it's it's like the Beatles without Ringo. You can't, yeah. it's just not
2: the same. You can't have my Python without the, the giant Cupid foot coming down and squashing things uh, for sure. So the result was this wholly unique at its time and absolutely abscur- absurd sketch comedy show, Monty Python's Flying Circus. It began airing in late 1969. It runs for four seasons and forty five episodes. It becomes wildly popular, but just in Britain for now this leads to their first film. And this was actually, uh, their first film was actually called, and now for something completely different. And now for something completely different is kind of a catchphrase used in flying circus. But this is them on a very low budget, just reshooting some of the more popular, uh, sketches from their first two seasons and trying again for their, fur or a- as- at least trying for the first time to break over into that massively important market, especially back then the Americas. And, um, The U.S. of A. And and, uh, this did not do the trick. So back to the drawing board for the Pythons. Uh, This film wasn't uh, very super successful. So
3: one of the key things that that made it now for something completely different, uh, kind of a flop, is uh, that the director of the TV series was a guy named Ian McNaughton. And the movie itself was literally just... Shot for shot, better lit, restaged, re-edited sketches. Uh, A lot of the original sketches were done in front of a live audience. They were, you know, mixture between film and tape. But with the higher budget, with the better consideration for photography, all that stuff, because it was a movie, a lot of the editing and shooting decisions were out of the Python's hands. And uh, people uh, like Terry Jones were kind of frustrated with what McNaughton ended up doing, uh, you know, they he added music betting to certain sketches that like undercut the punchlines in a lot of seri- uh, a lot of things. Uh there was just a, an immediacy that was lost, timing was off. It just they they felt like their humor was not being adequately translated to a broader audience with McNaughton at the helm. And uh that led to some kind of uh, strains between the group and the
2: director. As we go into this next film, the topic of our episode they're not in a great place uh, this is 1974 they're between their third and fourth seasons they're gonna be done after the fourth season at least with making the TV show John
3: Cleese is already peeling away mm-hmm. uh, I think by the third season he only committed to like half uh filming only like
2: seven out of the 14 episodes we'll get more into Graham Chapman's drinking in just a second but as they go on a uh, tour together doing live shows it starts to become very apparent that it is becoming a massive problem he's missing his his cues. He's not get going on stage when he's supposed to because he's hammered, um, which brings <laughs> me gives me uh, murder fist flashbacks. But uh, yeah, it's it, they're j- they're not again. I I, t- I, t- I probably said the word confidence way too many times, but they're lacking it uh, in a lot of ways going into this as a group. And this is a weird like final you know big swing to get a successful film to break into the American audience while at the same time they're feeling a little bit on their last legs. Now let me take a break for a second before we get into the script for Monty Python and the um, ridiculous, weird way they ended up getting money for this movie, and talk a little bit about the Arthurian legend. So, we, I don't know if you're aware, King Arthur is who this is centered around, uh, was a British leader who led the defense of Britain against Saxon invaders in the late 5th and 6th centuries. And his stories are mostly from Welsh and English folklore and are generally known to not be actually historical. And I, I didn't I was kind of hazy. I didn't really realize this. Like, but it's funny because like one of my favorite Disney movies of all time is Sword in the Stone based on that book oh I thought you were going
3: to say a kid in King Arthur's Court so I'm (laughs) glad (laughs) there's
2: also that there's all that like now that I think about it there's all these weird retellings of the legend in all these different ways it's essentially just this fertile soil to tell whatever kind of story you're trying to tell uh, back in, in medieval times with like English kings and things like that and none of it was actually necessarily true at all it becomes largely popular in Britain, mainly due to a man named Geoffrey of Monmouth or Geoffrey of Monmouth and his pseudo historical work titled History of the Kings of Britain. And so, again, it's none of it's real made up for to sell a book, and uh, people really go crazy for it. So, there's no canonical version of the Arthurian legend. Which I did not realize. However, the basics include his father, Uther Pendragon, the magician Merlin, his wife, Guinevere, his sword Excalibur, his final battle against Mordred at Camlin, and his final rest in Avalon. But it's actually the 12th century French writer, uh, Cretin de Troyes, who added his close companion Lancelot to the legend, as well as... The Holy Grail. So it actually came from a Frenchman.
3: Oh no! The Arthurian legend is uh, heavily influenced by French writers. I mean, the most popular telling of King Arthur is "Le Mort du Arthur." Like the you know, it's just a hop, skip, and the jump between the Saxons and the Normans, and the cultural cross pollination between the two are highly uh, contagious. But the the fact is is that. The earliest references definitely are from those Welsh and Irish sources, mm. and then this kind of uh, bounce in between, and authors would like take stories and like continue them. There's all these kind of things where people are just bouncing stories back and forth between each other, and uh, stuff like the Holy Grail and uh, the Fisher King, and all these and different knights are added to all these different things. I believe uh, when I did my own wiki dive, the earliest reference to uh, the grail, quote unquote, in Arthurian legend is, yeah, a French uh, romance verse uh, that was never even finished. But this the idea was Sir Percival comes across a, not even Jesus's cup, not even the holy chalice, just a golden grail uh, that is also not even the main treasure in the story. It's like A golden lance is, like, even more prevalent in this original story, but it introduces the idea of, uh, you know, one of King Arthur's knights is looking for a cup, and that, like, (laughs) people just get that ball and just starts rolling with it, and it becomes a big old MacGuffin for a lot of these characters.
2: In other works, is described as a dish or a stone. Uh, either way, it has magical powers that uh, can do different things. Maybe provide eternal youth or infinite sustenance, and is generally used to describe an elusive object or goal sought after for its great worth. So uh, again, something completely up to interpretation, just like mm. the rest of the Arthurian legend.
3: Even the knight that gets the Grail. Uh, you know, there's stories where it's uh, it's the Lancelot Grail cycle, it's the Percival Grail cycle, it's the Galahad Grail cycle. Mm. Uh, all of these stories kind of just bouncing off each other and running parallel to each other over the course of centuries some in french some in german some in uh ye old english it's all kind of it's 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 imagine a world without uh ip rights where anybody can just do, take their heroes and write a cool ass story with them it's like an it's like a ao3 but instead of the internet you have to handwrite it in darkness you know fucking on the side of a of a cow.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, let's go back to our lovely comedy troupe, the Monty Pythons and just talk about how they end up getting to this crazy f- production process for the making of the film. So, uh yeah, w- initially already having issues out the gate because they want to get these two first-time directors with Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam. We'll refer to them as the Terrys. Throughout this as well, uh, they want to get them at the helm of a larger budgeted studio film, and this is a project studios just refused to fund. Probably, I halfway based on the fact that they weren't able to really get their last film off the ground very well. This would be an even larger undertaking. Um, so the budget came from an unlikely source. Rock and roll, baby. Cue the guitars. April. <laughs> <laughs> Dilla, la, 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 la. Another brick in the wall. Yeah, we're Pink Floyd and we're funding your movie, Monty Python. Um, so the bands involved were Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, and Jethro Tull, along with a cricket team called Heartaches, which were founded by lyricist Tim Rice, a frequent collaborator with Andrew Lloyd Webber, as well as three record companies. Also, apparently, the band Genesis contributed, as well as Elton John. One of the record companies, too, was uh, the company that was producing the Monty Python. Python comedy albums uh, got involved as well. And as Jake mentioned before, this was a lot less because these rock bands were like, I, I believe in these guys and I think they're going to make the best comedy film ever made. And a, a lot a lot more so because um, they could just get this giant tax write-off. And apparently taxes in Britain at this time were just a
0: nightmare. So they were looking for any way to get tax write-offs. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or Mc Crispy Sandwich.
3: financed the amounts of money although a lot you know for the time uh Island Records gave 21,000 uh pounds Led Zeppelin gave 31,000 pounds like uh Tim Rice's football club just gave 5,000 British pounds which yeah. ended up with a total finance uh budget of 175,000 pounds which is
2: Yeah which is more like 400,000 dollars in today's America money so which is if you know anything about filmmaking, Jack squat uh, <laughs> when it comes to being able to like make a, a actually like respectable you know quality product that could be put into theaters all over the world. And this is why we get into immediately why corners were cut. And uh, the biggest example for sure was the coconut shells instead of horses, which I feel like immediately was this moment in the film where you're like, oh, I'm watching something completely bonkers. This is so wild. This is so weird and fun. And it was totally just because they had no money for horses.
3: I This is where something is off in the narrative, and I just I don't quite get, um, I don't know how to square this circle, but in tons of interviews, the Pythons talk about how the earliest script was barely had barely any resemblance to uh the Holy Grail. I think yes. it was going to be another all sketch show.
2: It took place it took place half in the Middle Ages, half in present day and it was bouncing back and forth. That's
3: apparently the like 10th script revision. Uh, <laughs> it's like there's it, it took a while to get formed into place, but one of the earliest standout sketches was the bridge of death and the introduction of Arthur and Patsy, and then apparently right from the get go, the squabbling about the coconut shells and the African European swallow, which uh, is like a big Terry Jones Michael Palin thing. They fucking love having a grand grandiose premise immediately get sidetracked with like arguing about finicky details.
2: <laughs> right, right, right. Which is such a such a de- definite huge part in the film. Terry Gilliam about the Coconut Shell said, We wanted to make real movies, not Python movies. If we'd had the money, we would have had real horses. But we had to get clever and thank God because the coconuts saved our ass. It's one of those things that's in retrospect, brilliant. Eric, Eric Idle had this to say: sometimes when you're making good work, you don't have enough money. It's uncomfortable and difficult and muddy, like the Holy Grail. It will turn out to be very good in the end because we didn't have enough. So you're inventing all the time. And I love that phrase, inventing all the time. It forces you to do that it forces you to think outside the box and come up with things that you wouldn't normally see in a film especially in a comedy film and that's what made that movie stand out years and years later was what was this 1975 it came out i'm watching it two decades later three decades later holden two
3: decades later from that is 1999 we are 30 1995
2: we are nearly 30 years This is 50 years, holding. And it holds up. And it holds up because of the low budget and because of the constantly inventing all the time uh that the group had to do in order to get this movie off the ground. So going back to the script, uh, Jake, we were just starting to get into it. Yes, Cleese, John Cleese later said that no more than 10 to 15% of the original script remained in the actual film. The ending is one of the funniest points of contention. I think this would have been a great ending for the for the movie. I actually love how it ends. John Cleese has come out and said he that's the one part he definitely doesn't like about the movie. And he's also saying a lot of things in hindsight, isn't he, these mm. days? So that's it's like, come on, get rid of it, come on. On, take his Twitter away, please, people. Uh, but he, uh, the ending originally involved the Holy Grail being discovered at the British department store Harrods. Have you ever heard of uh, Harrods, Jake? Of course.
3: Of course. It's the fanciest. I've been there. De- I've been there.
2: Yeah, it takes up an entire city block. It is in London. It is, And that's like not even doing it justice describing it as that. It is this huge store where literally you can find everything. And that's why they wanted to have the Holy Grail discovered there.
3: At the Grail counter, yeah. specifically. Yeah.
2: This, of course, was later cut, and instead they opted for the grail never being obtained, which the group felt was funny as a sort of, quote, great anti-climax, and I feel, I feel the same way. I think that it subverts expectations in every way, which is exactly what that film does from the very beginning with the Swedish subtitles and the, you know, and all that business. So To me, it really works very well, but uh, I do think that would have been a fun ending um, in its own right. It's
3: re- the Middle Ages as a backdrop. Uh, not only I think helps with uh, the American audience because it like you know puts everything in ye old England where there's less yeah. of a culture shock. Totally, with you know nobody has there literally is no lift to take instead of an elevator. There's no right. crisps instead of chips. There's no Agreed. biscuits instead of cookies. All the other shit that makes uh, British comedy just that much harder for an American audience to get into, and. It's the ultimate straight man. It is literally the most dour, uh, just put upon, foreboding era in English speaking history, and so it just elevates. It's the setting itself is a straight man, yeah. to for them to bounce off and to like play with, and it really helps. And if they had done just a straight up like uh, non sequitur sketch movie or that weird half-and-half concept, the movie would not be as good as it is.
2: And you get it very early on with, bring out your dead. (laughs) Bring out a cart just covered in a pile of dead bodies. It's so foreboding. There's uh, the fog and everything. And then just immediately, I'm not dead. And you're just like in it. It's so hard. It's just, uh, yeah, totally, totally agree with that. And even like, the sorcery stuff uh that, you know, those costumes and some of the effects and stuff do come off as legitimately creepy and like upset, you know, and unnerving in a, in a way that it, you know. Oh, shit. Uh-oh.
3: Random fact. That's oh, right. It's God a random fact. No, Lord. No, Jake. Don't please, know where God else I'm going to put it in the episode. So here's your r- 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 random fact. Chaos reigns. Did you know, Holton, that the uh, chainmail that the uh, knights are wearing are uh, actually silver painted knitted wool Ugh. and not actual chainmail? I chain mail.
2: did kind of know that only because that's part of why shooting was such a nightmare in very um wet Scotland. <laughs> Because that those costumes would immediately get soaked and uh adding to their absolute misery. It's
3: uh it, I never noticed it the first time, but having learned that, you look at uh John Cleese, and yeah, my dude's wearing like a tea cozy on his that is head. So it's funny. very it's very silly.
2: Speaking of John Cleese, he contributed the black knight scene inspired by an elementary school story. Of course, the black knight scene is just a flash wound when he cuts off each of his arms, then one of his legs, and he still wants to fight. There was this elementary school story about two Roman wrestlers who undergo an incredibly rigorous physical battle with one of them tapping out, only to find the other had died during the fight with the moral being to never give up. Cleese thought this was a dumb fuck story <laughs> and wanted to make fun of it, so that's why he wrote The Black Knight scene, So I thought was a very fun little, also kind of semi-random fact <laughs> chaos raids. Uh, so, yeah, we already started talking about how filming this was hell. Another element of that would definitely be the uh, the fact that the two Terrys, Nailed down all these castle locations in Scotland. By the way, Jake, uh, I definitely got to go to the castle. Um, You went to Castle Dune? Yeah, I I believe it was Castle Dune. Because the other one's like on a weird island or whatever. Yeah. So I believe it was definitely Castle Dune. Um, I did this uh, like bus tour through Scotland with uh, everybody, uh, a bunch of people. I did a um, college study abroad. Uh, We did college study abroad to, uh, uh, or or semester abroad to England, uh, London. Uh, England, and we did a big trip through Scotland, and it was a fun tour, because the guy was like, hey, we're near a Scotch distillery. you guys want to go? And we'd be like, yeah! And then they were like, hey, we're by the Monty Python castle from Holy Grail, you guys want to go? And I was like, very drunk on Scotch, and I was like, yeah! <laughs> and got to actually see the castle itself which was in person, which was very, very cool. But um, before they even got to that castle, they had nailed down all these different locations all throughout Scotland and were just about to get shooting the movie. And just a week before filming was set to commence, the Department of Environment for Scotland denied them access, claiming they were, quote, doing things that were not consistent with the dignity of the fabric of the building. (laughs) Terry Jones said... These places had been built for torturing and killing people, and you couldn't do a bit of comedy? It was ridiculous. They managed to find the new spots just in time, but they would only be the that would only be the beginning of the issues that they had making this production a reality. The
3: irony, of course, is Castle Dune, which and Castle Stalker are both yeah. privately owned, so they could just rent them out. And both of those places have become legendary tourist attractions beyond yes. any of the ones that people had like, uh, that the, the publicly owned ones that were taken to, that turned them down.
2: Yeah, so Castle Stalker, I believe is used in the final scene of the film. There are also a couple of castles that are briefly seen. The first exterior shot of a castle in the film is uh, uh, Kid Welly Castle in South Wales. And during the Tale of Sir Lancelot bit, we see Bodium Castle, which was in East Sussex. But mainly we just get Different angles of Dune Castle. Again, another way they had to cheat around limitations to make something work. So you're usually getting that Dune Castle uh, for most of the castle shots. And this lives in central Scotland and you can still go visit it. Uh, another location that was used quite a bit was Glencoe, which was uh, is a glen of volcanic origins in the highlands of Scotland. And this is where they shot the Bridge of Death sequence as well as the Gorge of Eternal Peril. Uh, and... Um, You know, going into this movie, I also want to take a little sidestep and just say, you know, it makes a lot more sense. You already mentioned the Swedish subtitles being kind of tied to like Italian art film and this, that, and the other. The Terrys approach this movie with this very highbrow art film influence. Terry Gilliam said, both Terry and I were very keen on Pasolini's films because they were always done in real places. You could smell them. You could feel it in the textures, the sounds and everything were all real. Pierre Paolo Pasolini was a neorealist filmmaker in post-war Italy that took a documentary style approach and applied it to the historical films he made, such as The Gospel According to St. Matthew, as well as probably his most notorious film, you may have heard of it before, Is one of those movies like, one of those... Like Like challenge movies, you know, that only like hardcore people who like you know watch like a Serbian film and stuff like that, and are like, yeah, I watched it; it was horrible. I don't know why people do it, but they do. Uh, And this one, the older versions of that, was Sallow or the One Hundred Days of Sodom, Mm. uh, which is one of uh, you know one of those like watch it once, never watch it again type deals. But more so than some of the other ones, in its genre, is actually respected as well as this very like well made. Uh, You know, art film. I think Scorsese has talked about how it was like one of his bigger influences uh, in in films growing up. So not not that it's like just total like schlock, you know, gross stuff. Some
3: film scholars have pointed out that the opening shots of the foggy kind of Glencoe uh, hit rolling hills and mountains uh, is... Eerily evocative and almost note for note, uh, from Kurosawa's Throne of Blood, mm. which uh was being filmed in England around the same time of the filming. Uh, you know, there's tons of like cinematicness to the point where uh, I, I, I want to introduce the concept that the one of the things that makes the movie so great is the influence of the two Terrys because yes. Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones were two very different directors. And uh, Terry Gilliam, of course, with an animation background, was dead set on composition, on texture, on lighting, on, uh, you know, all these like very visual things. So a lot of the, like the bring out your dead scene was Gilliam painstakingly building the scene, the arrival of the boat towards the end of the movie, majestic. And it really grounds the movie in its satirical subject of this historical epic. It really gives it this larger-than-life, well-shot, splendiferous feel because Gilliam was getting a taste. This was his first live-action directing. The Pythons complained at the time that, you know, we're not your paper cutouts, Terry. Like, we're people. You can't just, like, order us around like this. Um, And it was the first time Gilliam admits now uh, in his autobiography and in interviews that this was the first time he was like, oh, I don't think I care about jokes as much as I care about making a good looking movie. And it was like kind of his first taste for uh, what set him on his path to make films like, uh, you know, Brazil and Time Bandits and uh, Twelve Monkeys and uh, just his very distinct, rich visual style, while Terry Jones was absolutely about the jokes and the dialogue and the performances, more so than like how impressive any individual shot is. And uh, oftentimes, Gilliam talks about how he would get so frustrated with the uh, Pythons not like taking his direction or just the fact that he was responsible for a lot of the technical special effects shots that were like needing a lot more discipline and focus to pull off right, that he would just kind of storm off and sit in a field and stew in it <laughs> while Terry just kind of had, being the backup director was like, uh, okay, I guess uh, close up on John Cleese then. <laughs> like,
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, John Cleese accused Terry Gilliam of treating his actors like pieces, like his own pieces of paper, he uses for his animations, and not like people. I've got a bit of an anecdote of that coming around the corner, but apparently it was just added to the grueling shoot. But at the same time, ga- you know, gave us so much, such a more professional looking, more um, just impressive. F- look throughout the movie than you would ever expect from this like first time out attempt at this like crazy, uh, film on a very, very low budget. So, uh, getting back to the filming, uh, apparently their main camera breaks immediately on the first shot, uh, during the gorge of peril, uh, scene in Glencoe, which is a uh, Glencoe again, just reiterate very miserable place to film very wet uh, especially in April when they decided to film it I mean Scotland has is known for its difficult terrain you know I mean if you're a golfer you know Scotland's notorious for having the most like insanely challenging the golf courses just because of the weather and the and the landscapes and everything it's just
3: a lot of wet rocks where you eat haggis that's yes. my opinion
2: of Scotland exactly Terry Gilliam said on the very first shot the camera breaks on my very first directorial shot. So what do we do? We do all the wrong things. Terry Jones said, the cameraman said, hey, wait a minute. Something's gone wrong. He opened up the camera and all the gears (laughs) fell out. (laughs) <laughs> so they get another camera going, but it has no ability to record sound. The only camera they had that could record sound had just broken. So they end up having to pack up and move over to soundless shots that they had planned for shooting around that time. Um, and John Cleese said about shooting in Dune in uh, April it was a miserable experience. You got up in the morning, you got up on the hillside. It started to rain immediately because it was April and it was Scotland. And the rain came down. We had so little money. There were four umbrellas on the whole set. And this nasty chain mail, which was knitted string, would start getting damp. By nine o'clock, you were cold and wet. And then at six o'clock, when the first assistant said, wrap, there was this rush for the cars because there was only enough hot water for 40% of the people at the hotel. So there was this scramble to get back. It was a miserable, miserable time. <laughs> Sounds horrendous. Uh, another crazy element was that since they all played multiple characters in the movie, they had to solve a ton of like mental puzzles in shooting the scenes. Gilliam said, in almost every shot, everybody's playing about two characters. So people are always having backs to cameras and things like that trying to hide. It's gotten weird. There were a couple of days where we actually couldn't keep track of who's <laughs> who. <laughs> which I love that.
3: The BBC went on set behind the scenes and interviewed the Pythons while they were filming. And you can find that clip online. And um, everybody involved looks miserable. Everybody involved is barely containing their rage at each other. Everyone is haggard and shallow faced and just pushed to their absolute limit, trying to be polite to these uh, kind BBC people. Uh, They're eating like sad little soggy sandwiches for lunch. It's just, you know, just the filth and the dampness can be felt through the footage. And it's just, they had no clue if even what they were doing was working. Apparently, one of the biggest things that helped the production was they finally got their first rushes back after, like, uh, you know, a week of shooting and they actually got laughs and like the entire crew got their spirits back up and they're like oh, nice. oh there might we might actually be doing something worthwhile but hold i i don't you've you've been on sh- film shoots before you have acted the st- hurry up and wait the you know just standing around in ice cold weather in a shitty costume like yeah. it is brutal i helped with like one student film in college and i still have like residual nightmares about just just the, the the agony of like setting up shots and like having to break down because something's going wrong or there's noise or just all the little things that make it such a grueling process, especially at a, on a, with a small budget.
2: Yeah. And when it's DIY, almost no budget, no clearances for anything. I remember being so nervous shooting scenes on like a big open road with, with a camera attached to the back of a car and not knowing if we we're going to get pulled over by the cops with a monkey driving <laughs> a car. I had to get my, uh, f- uh, disgusting fake guts that were made out of like sugar based substances ripped out of me in like a very overgrown field covered in bugs <laughs> because it was just like this awful, horribly, I I can't believe I didn't uh, uh, get some kind of horrible disease from doing it, to be quite honest. I mean, just absolute nightmarish uh, attempts at making a comedy film. Uh, And so, yes, I absolutely understand what that is. And it's only something you could do uh, uh, I think at at a certain age. I think you get to a point where like, you just literally, I could not ever be bothered to do anything like that, I think, ever again. I have to have some kind of um, just professional people <laughs> making sure nothing horrible is going to happen to me. You know, no more like life or death risks in the name of comedy for this guy at this point in life. But uh, yeah, I'm, these guys are all very lucky they survived as well. And I have a few more stories that would point to the possibility that things could have gone horribly, horribly wrong. I mean, one right off the bat that some people know about if you know much about this film, but definitely is an interesting thing to keep in the back of your head when you rewatch it in the future, and that would be Graham Chapman's drinking problem, which became a very obvious issue on the set. Terry Gilliam said, Graham was a drunken sot. This great dignified character is actually blotto and he's struggling to get through his lines because he's playing King Arthur, by the way. Terry Jones said, we were filming the Bridge of Death sequence, so that's a good one to go back and watch for some of this, but Graham just wouldn't go near the edge and was shaking from head to foot. He was in a terrible state. I couldn't understand it. It was only later that I realized he was getting the shakes. He'd taken himself off alcohol in order to play King Arthur. And that was when I first realized this about him. Of course, he's referring to delirium tremens when you have a deep alcohol addiction and you get off of it. I mean, it can be deadly. Um, Your whole body quakes. It also gave him like vertigo as well. Um, Terrible fear of heights, which is terrible for especially shooting the bridge of death
0: scene.
3: The irony of that whole scenario is that uh, Graham was famously uh, a mountaineer. He actually loved to go climbing, and the pythons were like, oh, this will be a piece of cake. Here's our intrepid, uh, you know, Sherpa man. He's just got to climb a little bridge. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. And that was kind of a huge wake-up call for them.
2: Just to, just to close that out, Graham said, I was playing King Arthur in a cold drizzle, and I realized I was letting my friends down and letting myself down. As is often the case, this would not be the end of Chapman's alcoholism, but it seems to be the beginning of the end. Chapman would end up getting clean for good for a different Monty Python film, The Life of Brian three years later in 1977. So it was another film that finally got him fully off the sauce. Of course, he had an untimely death, unrelated, but um, at least he did get to live out some clean years uh, and enjoy his life.
3: Terry Jones actually uh, talks about how Chapman was kind of abusive, not abusive, that's a very, he was uh, constantly ragging on Jones uh, throughout the production because, uh, Director of and now for something completely different Ian McNaughton was actually a drinking buddy of his and he actually got along swimmingly with him and so he was like oh Ian wouldn't have done this you know this we should have gotten Ian this is a mistake and it caused a lot of tension during the filming uh, as well. Because of his loyalties.
2: One memorable, albeit disgusting moment was the one involving Michael Palin as a mud farmer, covered in this stuff, as he lectures King Arthur on the superiority of uh, anarcho-syndicalism. (laughs)
3: Anarcho-syndicalism.
2: It's an easy word. Government to monarchy. Apparently, John Cleese mentioned his frustration several times to Terry Gilliam, uh, and Gilliam's rebuttal for that was this. Anything that seemed to slow down the performance or that John felt was taking too much time to set up, he hated because he's quite serious about performance. But I think if you get the makeup, the costumes, the sets, the atmosphere right, the jokes are going to be funnier. And I have to kind of agree with that. Palin had to crouch in quote, filthy, stinking, pig-shitty mud, end quote, for hours for take after take and even had to eat some, which they somehow thought they could remedy by putting chocolate in the mud, but of course it all mixed together, so he's Mm. just eating mud chocolate. Uh, Palin said, I said, how will I know which is the chocolate and which is the mud? They had no answer for that. Uh, So he's eating this mud chocolate, and they do take after take, and then Gilliam informs him they have to keep shooting because he's had his back to the camera the whole time. Palin said, furious, Palin said, what? You can see my back? (laughs) What have you been doing all this time? And I went absolutely ape and threw myself in the air, landed in the mud, and just wiggled my legs around, screamed and yelled for about five seconds. There was absolute silence, and then John and Graham just led this spontaneous applause. As soon as the shot was done, by the way, Palin immediately runs to the nearest surgeon in some remote Scottish village for a tetanus shot, uh, still in costume, much to the confusion of the doctor.
3: <laughs> so insult to injury, of course, is that that scene was cut from the final movie.
2: <laughs> just awful sounding, just absolutely awful sounding. So you also have uh, an, uh, John Cleese's big terror moment was uh, as Tim the Enchanter on the mountaintop. Cleese said, "I realized I re- really, to my alarm, that there was a drop on one side that would have killed me, and a drop behind that would have maimed me. His billowy clothing made." the windy situation all the more terrifying. He said, I had to wait up there for 45 minutes and I was crouched at the top of this pinnacle just trying to present as small a target for the wind as possible. I remember Terry shouting, are you all right? And I said, no, what are you going to do about it? (laughs) Apparently just nothing and uh, luckily they got this scene filmed and he didn't die. But another example of... Honestly, people really are lucky to have all lived through this experience, for sure. While
3: we're talking about Tim the Enchanter, another famous story from behind the scenes of making of Monty Python and the Holy Grail is the famous killer rabbit of
2: Kerbinog. One of my favorite moments, I think that moment I had not actually seen until I got the VHS tape. And I was just like, di- I w- my stomach hurt. I was laughing so hard. It was so funny to me. Fame, uh, according
3: to behind-the-scenes legend, uh, they got a hold of a local rabbit owner and promised that the rabbit would not get dirty during the filming, only to promptly smear it in uh, red blood effects as soon as the owner was distracted. They recount... Hastily and uh, panically trying to wash the rabbit as soon as they were done filming, only to discover that it was permanent uh, dye that would not come off. And the owner was furious at them and threatening all sorts of repercussions, at which point Gilliam just says, we probably could have just bought our own
2: rabbit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That sounds about right. Run away! So for that final scene with the interrupted battle by a famous historian, they hired 175 college kids from the local University of Sterling. They got two pounds, as well as free food and transportation. One issue was, though, that the costumes weren't going to be ready for shoot day. Gilliam said, we got everybody, everybody's child, everybody who's around, to hold up banners and pike staffs in front of the camera, a few helmets we had, so you see those, and we set up very, very carefully, and you'd swear there's an army there. I mean, it's just every. It seems like every shot was an exercise in faking it till you make it, and just figuring out these impossible issues to put a whole film together. I'm surprised it runs as long as it does. I'm surprised that like the scenes work as well as they do. Just knowing all of this stuff, it's it's really crazy. But of course, it didn't come together immediately easily. I want to move into post production, Jake. Unless you have any other uh, anecdotes for the filming of. Monty Python, and the Holy Grail.
3: Um, Just a quick thing is uh, the music for the film was originally, Uh, originally, I believe it was uh, Monty Python regular, Neil Inez who did lots of music for the uh, Flying Circus back in the day. And he was given a paltry $3,000, 3,000 pound budget at which he got a bunch of low rent musicians. And he put together a very like, uh, if you remember the Brave, Brave Sir Robin song, That's the level of music that they had. Kind of like.
2: And he was very proud of it. And (laughs) but it's not. Oh, you're talking about
3: Homeward Bound composed by Jack Trombie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was uh, Terry Jones that kind of had to set him aside and was like, we've been doing test screenings and people just like the music is kind of undercutting. The uh, jokes a little. It just doesn't, it just feels like kind of uh, fake. It feels like we're satirizing. It's just not, it's not delivering like we want it to. And we're going to have to use uh, library music. Most of the music that we associate with Monty Python and the Holy Grail uh, are all uh, just uh, licensed pieces uh, by composers like Pierre Avery, Jack Trombie, and uh, Stanley Black. All kind of uh, just, again, lending credibility to the proceedings that when the rug gets pulled out
2: is just so, it hits so much harder. Uh huh. Completely. It's all the self serious. You
3: did of course do the music for uh, Sir Robin and the Spamalot song and or not. The, yeah. 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 The Camelot song. I, I guess we'll have to talk about Spamalot
2: a little bit. Oh I yeah. I, mean. I got a little oh, bit on okay. Spamalot for sure. I got a little bit on it. It is kind of, there's some funny stuff about Spamalot. Um, but yeah, yeah, that was all kind of figured out in post. The The whole post-production process was a nightmare. Terry Jones describes uh, their first test screening as, quote, a total disaster. Terry Gilliam said, quote, people hated it. There were walkouts. Apparently, this was due to a lot of clashing uh, over the cut between the Terrys, leading uh, Terry Gilliam to sneak into the studio at night with editor John Hackney to redo the cut behind Terry Jones' back. Gilliam said, my comeuppance was just around the corner corner uh when it came to that first screening because apparently they everyone laughed like crazy at the bring out your dead scene which was the original opening of the film and then there was dead silence After that, Gilliam said, I was so intent on a realistic atmosphere that I'd over-egged the sound effects to the detriment of the dialogue. What followed was 13 different test screenings. Eric Idle said, we dragged it towards being funny and just sounds like this slow, (laughs) arduous process to finally make it this comedy classic in my opinion a a comedy masterpiece but it's a reassuring in a way to know that it didn't just come together immediately
3: one funny thing about the test screening process is that they noticed uh, a better audience reaction when they just stopped asking the audience what they thought was wrong with it (laughs) as they left
2: So, the film premieres in the UK in early April of 1975, and in the US at the end of that month at the Plaza Theater in New York City, the poster advertised 1,000 coconuts for the first 1,000 patrons to arrive at the theater. Eric Idle said, we were called up in the hotel, and they said there's already 1,000 people outside lining up at 8 in the morning. They were sh- they were I don't think they expected that to happen. Uh, it was kind of a bit of a stressful shock for them. But the film is a huge, huge hit, and it really was... Was that that total crossover they were looking for? The film goes on to gross over five million dollars on a budget of four hundred thousand dollars, as we mentioned before. But uh, yeah, the most important thing was uh, it's the reason why I saw the move movie on Comedy Central in the middle of the day, and it completely informed my c- approach to sketch comedy writing. I mean, it's it's that this big effort and this actual uh, breakthrough to American audience... because. It's funny as a kid, you know, uh, our age, at least, Jake, you know, we we always knew of Monty Python as this like massively important, successful comedy group that came out of Britain. But it's interesting to know that they had huge struggles trying to become that for us kids mm-hmm. eventually. So that's really cool. A great example of their uh, success in America was that Elvis Presley became a huge Python fan and had apparently screened Holy Grail 45 times at Graceland. Apparently, he was that nerd that would quote the shit out of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and that really, really warms my heart. A friend of Elvis in
3: the uh, Monty Python, I think, Lawyer's Cut documentary, one of the more recent ones, a friend of Elvis's, literally talks about how uh, he got winged during like an accident, and his first response, Elvis said, was... uh, it's just a flesh wound.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, pretty amazing. I just such a funny movie, man. It's I, I love it so much. I never did see Spamalot. Did you see Spamalot, Jake? So
3: thanks to the modern uh, Broadway fandom, internet uh, on YouTube, you can actually find tons of uh, shaky bootleg cams of original run Broadway shows. Uh, as long as you search for. Name of the musical, Slime Tutorial. Because for some reason, it's to the point where they're not even getting around anything legally anymore. It's just like a, a weird in-joke among musical theater That's fans. Funny. That uh, If you want to, you know, Waitress Slime Tutorial, Heather's Slime Tutorial. <laughs> and I watched it, and it is at once uh, very endearing. Like, the cast is amazing. You have Hank Azaria, Tim Curry, uh, David Hyde Pierce. Is that his name? Whatever. Frasier guy. Yeah. David Hyde The show like kind of grinds to a halt when they're just kind of singing the words to one of the sketches from the movie. But there is some real bangers. Um, once uh, once in every show, there's a song like that goes like this is really great. Uh, the whatever happened to my part. A uh, breakdown at the end of, uh, in the middle of act two is really good. The whole character of the Lady of the Lake that they introduced, because there is no real female characters in the movie, is a really great addition to the show. Uh, I don't know if it's like an all-time classic. Uh, obviously, this was the same era, era when like there was a million movie adaptation musicals going along in the post-producers boom that was happening.
2: yeah. It
3: really, especially if you're a fan of Eric Idle's, like, particular sense of humor, uh, I found it very endearing, and a lot of the songs were catchy.
2: Yeah, so Jake has it there. It was mostly written by Eric Idle. Pretty much the whole thing was an Eric Idle joint with, like, very, no real... work put in by the rest of the python the
3: uh the pythons uh their reaction to it in interviews is very weird like they, at one point they'll be like well you know it's not really our thing it's eric's thing or like i wouldn't go see a musical where you're just repeating old material that feels dumb to me
2: yeah yeah it, it's a lot it's very pejorative it's very like put downy on eric idol's part that eric idol's like i made all those fuckers a million dollars and they didn't have to do a thing for it Fuck those guys! Like it's very, it's it's very indicative of a, the dynamics of a sketch comedy. Uh,
3: one of the funny things is that one of the producers from the original movie, a guy named Mark Forstater, uh, actually uh, sued the Pythons because he was cut out of the royalties from the musical. Obviously, he didn't care until it was a big hit. But the legal fees that the Pythons incurred from that lawsuit actually gave them an incentive to do a uh, reunion tour called the Monty Python Live, parentheses mostly, because Graham Chapman was dead, Mm. in 2014, which is just a weird piece of serendipity.
2: Very bizarre. And since 2018, a film version of Spamalot has been in the works. Originally, they had Benedict Cumberbatch signed on as King Arthur. Peter Dinklage was going to be his servant Patsy. Tiffany Haddish- was signed on as the Lady of the Lake. Apparently, this stalled due to to, to the acquisition of 21st Century Fox by Disney. It led to uncertainty about that casting. Apparently, uh, they did still have Tiffany Haddish signed on for a while. I don't know if that's still the case. It was announced actually as recently as January of 2021, the project has been moved to Paramount Pictures. So who knows? We may get a -a Spamalot movie, which is always weird when you have a movie based on a musical. (laughs) Based on a movie. Very uh, hairspray uh, of them to do that. But regardless, the real reason for the season here is the original film. Definitely, if you've never seen it, go watch it. It's on Netflix. It's so good. It's so funny. And uh, I'm so glad it holds up. I do think it still is one of the greatest, definitely one of the greatest sketch comedy films of all time, if not one of the greatest comedy films of all time. And I guess I would finish the whole thing by asking Jake the question I asked him before we started recording, which is, why is this the ultimate nerd comedy movie. Not comedy nerd movie. Why is this the ultimate comedy movie for nerds? What is well what is, I
3: think one of the big things is um it is just by nature uh silly. Yeah, there's no, there's barely anything resembling a romance subplot, and even right. then, the joke with uh, you know, what is it Galahad, yeah, the pure yeah, or person? I forget which one. He didn't is how get laid. awkward and horny his, he is he? Yeah,
2: and that he doesn't end up getting laid, which I always felt re- weirdly bad for <laughs> for him. So that.
3: anything that is, I and I we've I mentioned this before on our they might be giants episode. I mentioned it a lot of times, but if something is. Uh, truly enjoyable without reminding you of how much girls don't like you. (laughs) Uh, It is bound to become a nerd classic. And it perpetuated itself throughout nerd culture. Um, You can like, there's an Easter egg in Tesla Model 3s if you mention the Rabbit of Cairnabog. You know, Siri makes Monty Python references if you ask her a couple of weird questions. There's uh, in the Fallout games, you can find a holy hand grenade of Antioch. Uh in The Witcher you can find the rabbit of Carnabog. It's just this self-perpetuating thing where uh they just left an imprint where anytime you even mention the medieval period, somebody's gonna make a Monty Python reference. It's just this I it's just it's just it's a self-perpetuating reference because the movie stands up. The movie's just it's gonna be a classic yep. for as long
2: as silliness is fun. Yeah, agreed. I uh, love it, and I guess the other thing is, it's such a good like inside joke quote machine for sure. And and it really, like we said in the beginning, I think the other part of it is like there's like ten different immediate go to quotes from that movie to let someone else know that you're also super nerdy about <laughs> old British <laughs> sketch comedy groups and uh, just uh, nerdy about stuff in general. So. We hope you enjoyed this episode on Monty Python and the Holy Grail. We'll definitely want a circle back around, maybe do a Flying Circus episode at some point where we can get more in detail about you know, the beginnings of Monty Python. I'd love to do a Life of Brian oh episode at some point. It's, that is also one of my favorite comedy films of all time. And so on and so forth. Thank you again, everyone, for joining us. Uh, hey, if you'd like to support us further, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We've got... I know. I hear you already. You hear the plugs and you're turning off the episode. Listen yeah, yeah, to the yeah, plugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stay with me. I have a secret. Me. I'm going to tell at the. I'm going to tell a secret at the end that you won't want to <laughs> miss. Okay. After the plugs, I'll say a secret about my life. I've never told anyone. Okay. All forward right. Patreon.com/slash/whizbrew. Uh, Five dollars a month for bonus content weekly. We do Wizard in the Newser, where we talk about current events as well as the things we're enjoying these days playing, watching, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and then for $10 a month, you can join us on our weekly Sunday study sessions where we'll essentially hang out and cover the thing that we're talking about, uh, re- researching rather, that week. Uh, this past week, we did, uh, we watched My Python the Holy Grail. We also did our production schedule on our Sunday study session. That's a new bonus thing we do on it where whoever's with us in that study session gets to have an active hand in what we decide to cover um, over the coming months. We, we planned out through April. So again, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. You can check me out on twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators uh, Monday, Tuesday, Friday streams. I'm always getting new Wizard of the bruiser fans in. Had a lot of people come in after that Twitch uh, episode to send me love, and that was really, really cool, you guys. So uh, keep it coming, please. I love the community on there. I think you guys will too. Twitch.tv forward slash Ho.
3: Really got to emphasize that, that Patreon is a fantastic way to support the show and support us, and literally. Uh, keep us alive. If you enjoy the fact that we're alive, the Patreon is a great way to let us know.
2: For $100 a month, you can help us kill God. (laughs) What? (laughs) That's not true. But don't worry about
3: it. (laughs) Random fact. Last minute end end of the thing fact.
2: Raids.
3: Did you know, Holden, that the face of God... It used in the movie as animated by the uh, animator and director Terry Gilliam was actually the face of famous amateur English cricketer known for his billowy beard, W.G. Grace, who died in 1915.
2: I hate that fact. Anyway. My secret is that in kindergarten, a kid peed in my eye in the bathroom and made me really upset. I think I might have talked about it a couple times. It's very rare I've talked about it. I was kind of ashamed of it. Uh, Alright, and uh, that's all for our show Hey, and always remember Never stop bruising And keep on whizzing No need to go to bed No need to call the doctor Cause I'm not yet dead He is not yet dead That's what the Jesus said This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or Mc Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.